Amen. That's a beautiful song and so appropriate for today, isn't it? You know what I love about that song? It's not a new song. It was written a long time ago. And it uh, just goes to prove that people have had burdens in the past, haven't they? And the writer of that song lived many, many years ago and yet uh, was carrying a burden and, and understood what sorrow and things like that were all about and yet saw that hope that is uh, for every believer. And uh, thank the Lord we're not the first generation to live with some trouble. We're not the first ones to have to carry a burden. Others have done so as well and been faithful, and uh, there's a reward at the end of it all. We're thankful for that. Let's go to the book of Jonah tonight, the book of Jonah. The city of Nineveh was a city that was a part of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire was a very wicked, wicked empire. Now, the Bible doesn't give us all the details here in the book of Jonah. It simply calls this city a great and wicked city. They were primarily involved in a lot of, uh, a lot of violence in this city. There was, of course, immorality and things of that nature, but they were known as a very violent city, a city that was very materialistic in nature, striving after those things that the world had to offer, and far from God, to be sure. And God comes to the prophet Jonah, and he says, Jonah, I need you to go preach to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah's response was one that probably some of us might have had. He said, God, they don't deserve a revival. They don't deserve your mercy. They don't deserve your love. They're a wicked place. They deserve your judgment. And so Jonah, instead of obeying God, as we sang about tonight, instead of doing immediately what God said, Jonah said, no. When God said go, Jonah said no. And Jonah decides to go the other way. He goes down to buy a, a ticket to take a ship to Tarshish. It's interesting, in chapter 1 it tells us he paid the fare thereof. Don't ever forget that when you run away from God, you're not getting out of the expense. Some people think, well, it's going to cost me something to serve God. It's going to cost something to be obedient. It costs something to disobey, too. Jonah pays the fare for this ticket, and he, he runs. He, he goes the opposite direction, if you please, and he gets on this ship to disobey God and do his own thing, and we know the story. As he's on that ship, a storm comes up, and the mariners, they tried to bring the ship in, but there was nothing they could do, and finally they cast lots to see why this had befallen them, and the lot fell upon Jonah. And at that point, Jonah confesses, I, I'm a Hebrew, and uh, I'm a prophet, and uh, I'm supposed to be serving God, but I'm not. This is my fault, and the only way you're going to prevent being destroyed yourself is to throw me overboard. And they didn't exactly want to do that. They tried to lighten the ship. They tried to bring it in, but nothing was working. And so finally they picked Jonah up and they threw him overboard. And God had prepared a huge fish. Jesus called it a whale in Matthew chapter 12. And this whale swallowed Jonah up alive. Jonah ends up in the belly of this fish. And in that whale's belly, God begins to work upon Jonah's life, and Jonah goes through a very difficult time there. It's interesting reading as he's in the belly of this fish. And at that point, he says, okay, God, I'll, 
I'll, I'll obey you. And God tells the fish to, to uh, spit Jonah out, and he does so on the dry land, and God comes to Jonah a second time. And aren't you glad that God does? I'm glad that God's a God of second chances. And he says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach that judgment is coming unless you repent. Now Jonah takes off for Nineveh. He arrives at this city, a great city, a wicked city, a city in rebellion against God, and he preaches one message. And the entire city repents. One sermon, and this whole city turns to God. You know what that tells me? We're just one sermon from revival. Just one sermon away. Jonah preaches, and I mean this city, they don't just come down an aisle and pray a prayer or kind of, you know, fill out a card. I mean, this, this city, they repented before God. They, they declared a fast. In fact, they not only fasted, they made their animals fast. The pastor talked about fasting and praying for this meeting. Probably you didn't tell your dog, you're not eating this week. We're fasting for revival. They made their animals fast. It's fascinating what they did. And, and, and sackcloth and ashes in their humility before God. And this city experiences the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, one of the greatest revivals on record. I don't know of another revival where uh, a sermon was preached and everybody in the city gets right with God. And everybody had revival in Nineveh except the evangelist. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Here was one of the greatest revivals on the record of history. And yet the one who went to preach the revival, as far as I can tell, never gets right with God. The devil managed to rob Jonah of the very thing he was called to bring to others. You know, I've been robbed a few times. I've been robbed at gunpoint. I've been robbed electronically. There's a lot of ways you can rob people today. But the devil doesn't need a gun, a firearm, or a laptop to rob us. The devil oftentimes will use what he used in Jonah's life to rob us of, his of God's blessing. Jonah's life, he used bitterness. Jonah was bitter. He was angry. He was displeased because of a bitter root in his life. Now, bitterness is not just a bad mood. We all get in some bad moods. There are things in life that can cause us to be discouraged or frustrated or even angry at times. But bitterness is not just, I'm going through a tough time right now. Bitterness is not just an unfriendliness or I don't feel like cooperating or I just don't feel motivated right now. Bitterness, according to the Bible, is an evil root that is wrapped around our heart. And it chokes us of all spiritual vitality and victory. It's interesting, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4, Jeremiah says, Thy ways and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness, because it is bitter 
because it reaches unto thine heart. Bitterness is something that can easily be covered up on the outside. We can throw the smile on and come to church and act friendly and sing the right songs and pray the right prayers and preach the right sermons, and yet inside, in our heart, we can have the the tentacles of bitterness wrapped around our heart, choking us of vitality and victory. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 22, Paul said, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, And pray, God, if the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Pray, God, if he would forgive the thought of thine heart. I perceive you're in the gall of bitterness. And when bitterness begins to get a hold of our heart, God's spirit is quenched. God's Holy Spirit that wants to empower us and wants to use us and wants to bless our life, he's stifled, he's quenched. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one toward another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You see, if bitterness in our life is left unattended, if we just leave it there to, to sort of settle into our hearts and entangle us, that bitterness will rob us of God's grace in our life for daily living. And it will also leave others in our path defiled and destroyed. It'll ruin your family. It'll ruin your church. It'll ruin friendships. It'll ruin marriages. It will ruin churches. You don't believe me? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, looking diligently lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You see, when bitterness gets a hold of our heart, when bitterness begins to entangle us, it not only defiles us, it not only troubles us, but it leaves many in the wake defiled as well. How does bitterness rob us of God's blessing, of God's power, and destroy others in our pathway? Let's look tonight at four benchmarks of bitterness as we see it developing here in the life of Jonah. First of all, I see a selfish expectation. Jonah's desire for Nineveh was completely different than God's desire. We see that back in, in, in chapter 1 as God tells Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, and Jonah says no. And why does he say no? Well, chapter 4, look at verse 2, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Jonah said, I I told you this was going to happen. I knew this is what you were going to do. Way back when you told me back in my country to go to Nineveh, I knew that you were going to have mercy on them. And that's not what I wanted. That's not what I felt they deserved. 
You see, Jonah's expectation was completely different than God's expectation. Are your expectations tonight about life selfish? Are they what you want? Or are they what God wants? You know, so many times we find that we build up expectations about our, our relationships, about our marriages, about what church is supposed to do for us. And if we really investigate those expectations, they're very selfish in nature. Well, this is what I think I deserve. This is what I think the church should do for me. This is the way my wife ought to treat me. This is the way my boss should be treating me at work. This is what I ought to be paid. This is what I ought to get for, for the perks or vacation time or whatever. We, we, we build our expectations around a selfish expectation and it's going to leave us very frustrated because our plans are not always God's plans. The Bible tells us in Isaiah that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And when we allow expectations to be built on our own selfish interest and desire, we are setting ourselves up for bitterness. When I was in college, we had a lot of preachers come by and preach, of course, and one of our favorites was Dr. Monroe Parker. Dr. Parker was a very, uh, a very witty man. He had a tremendous intellect and was just very sharp, very quick to respond to questions and things of that nature. And, and uh, I remember one day he was talking to the preacher boys there in a class, and, and uh, he said, you know what we are? You know what we are? He said, we're just a bunch of dirt balls. He said, we were made out of dust, and we're going back to dust again. He said, all you are is a dirt ball. You say, now, Dr. Parker, I am saved. He said, okay, you're a glorified dirt ball. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. You know, we start to think, well, you know, look at me and look what I can do and look at all my talents and, and look at my abilities and, and boy, I've got something to offer and here's what I think God ought to do. Here's, here's the way my marriage ought to be and here's the way my church ought to be and here's the way life ought to be treating me. And, and we get to thinking this is what is best based on our opinion. And all we are is a glorified dirt ball. Like Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's only by God's grace that we're saved. It's only by God's grace that we can grow and, and become more like him. Uh, we are sinners saved by grace. What hast thou, Paul said, that thou dost not receive? Now, if thou dost receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Everything we have is a gift from God. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Our health, our wealth, our happiness, our friends, our church, our relationships, they are all a gift from God. We're nothing in his sight. We are servants to God and, and unprofitable servants at best. And so when we allow selfish expectations to rule our life, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. 
Paul said, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. In fact, Paul realized at one point in his life, lest I should be exalted above measure, it was given me a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul recognized that oftentimes what he saw himself accomplishing or doing for the cause of Christ was merely a stewardship that God had given him. And when he got a little puffed up or he got a little boastful maybe in his heart, God said, wait a minute, remember where you got that. God allowed a thorn in the flesh. God allowed that messenger of Satan, that physical infirmity to remind him that he was simply a sinner saved by the grace of God. Selfish expectation, but notice this self-expectation in Jonah's life led to a sanctimonious escape. Jonah didn't believe that Nineveh deserved revival. They didn't, he didn't believe that, that Nineveh deserved God's mercy or forgiveness. So now Jonah kind of spiritualizes everything in his own mind and decides, I'm going to escape my responsibility. Remember, Jonah's a preacher. Jonah's a prophet. Jonah is one sent by God to deliver God's word, to say, thus saith the Lord. But now Jonah has come up with a sanctimonious escape to the will of God. Jonah decides, I'm smarter than God. I know better than God. No, Nineveh does not deserve mercy. They don't deserve revival. In fact, look at chapter 1 and verse 3. Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare thereof, went down into it to go with him unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. One little assignment tonight later, read the book of Jonah and find how many times the word down is mentioned. Jonah goes down to Tarshish. He goes down to a ship. He goes down into the sides of a ship. He goes down into the belly of a fish. I mean, when you're running from God, you're going down. You're going down fast. Jonah is going away from God. He's running from God. Forget the call of God. Forget the command of God. Forget the will of God. You see, the selfish expectations in our life, they lead us to a sanctimonious escape of responsibility. When those expectations are not met, all of a sudden we say, well, my wife isn't doing what she's supposed to do, so I'm not going to be the right kind of husband. Well, my church didn't come through for me, so I forget church. I'm not going back there. Well, I prayed, and God didn't answer my prayer, so forget that. Right? Isn't that how it works? Well, we get a selfish expectation, and all of a sudden it's not what God wants. It's not what God intended. And so we get disappointed, we get upset, we get angry, and that bitterness begins to set in, and all of a sudden now we're, we're not interested in doing anything that God wants us to do. Because we think we know better than God. Achan thought he knew better than God, and so he took the spoils from Jericho. Saul, King Saul, thought he knew better than God, so he spared King Agag and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen. David thought he knew better than God, so stayed home from battle. 21 times he'd gone to battle and won the victory, but this time, no, I know better, I need rest, I'm staying home. Samson thought he knew better than God, 
so despised his Nazarite vows. Esau thought he knew better than God, and so sold the birthright, the blessing of God, for a bowl of soup. Ananias and Sapphira thought they knew better than God, so withheld their offerings from the church. And sometimes we think, well, I know better than God, so I don't have to obey him. I know what's best for me. I know what I want. And, and we see the selfish expectation building in our own mind. And then when God doesn't fulfill that expectation, we escape from all responsibility. When the expectations are not, not met, we look for an escape from our responsibility. We want out of obedience. We want out of marriage. We want out of the church. We want out of those things that God commands. There are no conditions to the will of God. We can't come to God and say, okay, God, I'll serve you if. Lord, I'll, I'll be faithful if. Lord, I'll witness if. Lord, I'll, I'll tithe if. Lord, I'll, I'll go to church if. No, there, there are no ifs. There are no conditions to the will of God. We don't, we don't come to God and say, okay, God, here, here, here's uh, my part of the contract. No, our job is simply O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. -E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. It's not, well, Lord, I, I'll obey if. No, no. God calls the shots. We may not always understand. We may be in the dark. We may think, God, I, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. And when you find people in the Bible who did that, my, how God blessed their life. When you find people like Jonah who said, no, I know better than you, God. I'm smarter than you. You got this one wrong, God. Nineveh doesn't deserve revival. Things don't turn out so well. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? A selfish expectation led to a sanctimonious escape, but then it led to a, a sinful expression. As I said before, bitterness is something you can hide. It's something you can easily cover up. We, we know how to act. I took some speech and drama in college. In fact, ended up minoring in speech, and, and uh, I wasn't that great, but, but I learned some things about acting. First play I was in was a play, a Shakespearean play called As You Like It, and I had a walk-on part. I was on stage for about 45 seconds. And they gave us the play, they gave us the book, and I read this. I never read it. I thought, I'm only on stage for 45 seconds. I don't even know what this is about. I'd show up to practice. They'd say, okay, you're on. I'd walk on. They'd tell me where to stand. And I was supposed to look at the person talking. I was supposed to nod my head like this. And I learned how to do that. And I walked off when I was supposed to walk off. I was acting. I didn't even know what the story was about. I just played a part. I tried out for the next play. It was the play called Hamlet. And in the play Hamlet, I got the, I got the, the part of a gravedigger. 
Now, uh, there's a lot of typecasting in, 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 in casting for a play, and uh, we do about four different dramas uh, at West Coast every year, and I get to write them and direct them, and, and uh, you typecast the actors. And uh, I had dug graves as a kid. In fact, I dug my grandfather's grave when I was 10 years old. I was the caretaker of a cemetery when I was a kid and uh, mowed the grass and dug graves. So I had some experience digging graves. And in Hamlet, I had three lines. Had to memorize them. And you've got to memorize when to say them, too. You can't just say them whenever you want to. You've got you to you memorize the cue line, you know. And I learned how to act as a grave digger. Then the next play was uh, uh, the play called The Robe. It was a spiritual play, a Christian play about the garment of Jesus Christ and how the Roman soldiers, they cast lots for his garment to see whose it would be rather than tear it into four pieces. They, they gambled for it. Well, I was a Roman soldier, a drunken Roman soldier who gambled for the robe of Christ and lost. So I got to act like a drunk. Now, I've never been drunk in my life, but I learned how to act like I was drunk. I kind of enjoyed it, actually. You know, stumbled around the stage, slurring my words, you know. I acted like a drunk. The next play I was in was Julius Caesar, and I got the part of Brutus. I got to kill Julius Caesar five times. We did the play five times. And what was really cool about it was Julius Caesar was the heavyweight wrestler in the college. He had the fastest pin ever in the history of that college, six seconds. He was undefeated his junior and senior year. I got to stab him right in the chest five times. I killed the heavyweight wrestler five times on stage in front of everybody. It was awesome. Now, I never killed anybody, but I learned to act like a murderer. Ete brute, you too, Brutus? Yeah, me too. Boom, right in the heart. The last play I was in was called Cyrano de Bergiac. Cyrano de Bergiac's a French play. It's a comedy, drama. Cyrano was this brash, swords-wielding uh, 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 swordsman and, and uh, soldier, and, and uh, he's highly intelligent. Again, remember typecasting. It's all part of typecasting, highly intelligent. And, uh, but he, had, he was ugly. He had this huge nose. And he even had to add to my nose, make it bigger. I have a picture of it in my office. Cyrano dies in the last scene. Takes him 45 minutes to die. Cyrano has over 1,500 lines in that play. In the last act, 45 minutes, he's dying on stage. You know, I've never died before. But I learned how to act like I was dying. In fact, I fasted for 10 days prior to that play so I could feel like I was dying in scene five. You can learn how to act. We learned how to fall downstairs. We, we learned how, all kinds of things in acting classes. You know, I'm afraid as Christians, sometimes we've read the script. We've memorized the lines. We know where to stand and how to respond and when to speak and when not to speak. And bitterness is one of those things that we can kind of cover up by a lot of acting. But I want you to notice that in Jonah's life, this bitterness, when it gets a hold of your heart, it's going to express itself in some way. Look at chapter 4 and verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? Boy, this bitterness has come out now. 
He's come out in anger against God. He's saying, God, I don't want to live. Take my life. A selfish expectation. A sanctimonious escape. Now, a sinful expression. A little bit later, we see the same thing in verse 9 as God provides this protection from the heat of the day. But in verse 9, God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. You see, bitterness has to express itself. I mentioned the book of Hebrews a moment ago. And that verse 15, where it talks about the root of bitterness, it's in reference to a man named Esau. And the Bible says there in verse 15, looking diligently, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. You see, Esau got bitter about this this birthright. He got bitter about the blessing of God being stolen from his life. And so now this bitterness begins to well up in him, but it doesn't stop there. It expresses itself in fornication. It expresses itself in profanity. With Jonah, it expressed itself in anger, suicide. I don't know how it will express itself in your life, but it won't stay in the heart. Because what's ever in the heart is what we're eventually going to be. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. For from within, Jesus said, proceed evil thoughts and adulteries and fornication and murder and covetousness and theft and wickedness and deceit and lasciviousness and evil eye and blasphemies and pride and foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. See, when this bitterness wraps itself around our heart, oh, it defiles us from the inside out. But eventually there's going to be that expression. It may be anger towards someone you love. It may be abuse toward a family member. It may be a crime. It may be taking your own life. But sin has to express itself. That's why we've got to deal with the bitterness that's in our lives. We've got to flush it. We've got to forgive. We've got to focus on what God has for us. Because when we leave bitterness in our life, the worst of all worse is that we squander enjoyment. This entire city is experiencing a great revival. And Jonah is angry. Jonah's missing it. You know, you can be right in the middle of God's blessing and not even know it because you're focused on your own bitterness. You're focused on that which is in your heart. Jonah's miserable. He's upset. He wants to die. 
right in the middle of this city, repenting. It reminds me of Elijah. Remember Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18? He calls down fire from heaven and, and on Mount Carmel and, 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 and destroys all the false prophets there of Jezebel and Ahab. And I mean, it's an amazing victory. And then in chapter 19, Jezebel threatens Elijah's life. And Elijah runs to a cave. And God shows up there and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for you, Lord. I've told everything according to your word. And, and now I, I, I'm the only one left and they seek my life. I don't want to live anymore. You see, Elijah had a selfish expectation. It wasn't turning out like he thought it was supposed to turn out. He had been faithful. He had done what God said. And yet now they're threatening his life. We saw it last night in the life of Jeremiah. He did everything according to God's word, and yet now they're mad at him. And here's Elijah, and he said, God, I don't, I don't want to live. Take my life. And God said, okay, I'll get you out of there. I'm not going to kill you because I love you. I'll send a whirlwind to come get you. But he said, Elijah, before I send the whirlwind, I need you to do a couple things. I need you to go down and find... I need you to find uh, 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 Jehu. He's one of my men. He, he's one of my guys. He's faithful to me. He hasn't bowed his knee to Baal. You find him. And I want you to anoint him to be the next king over Israel. When you get that done, find Hazael. He's one of my men. He's not bowing to Baal. He's faithful. You find him and anoint him because I want him to be the next king of Syria. And when you get that done, I want you to find Elisha. And he'll probably be plowing, but find him and, and throw your mantle on him because he's going to be the prophet in your room after I take you out. And uh, he's going to do twice as many miracles as you ever thought about doing. So anoint him. Put your mantle on him. And if any of those three guys tell you no, I got 7,000 more on my list that have not bowed their knee to Baal. They're faithful to me. You know what's amazing about that story? Elijah didn't know any of those people. He said, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one standing for God. I'm the only one left. God said, no, no, no. I got Hazael. I got, I got Jehu. I got Elisha. I got 7,000 others. But Elisha couldn't see it because he had allowed those tentacles of bitterness to wrap themselves around his heart. And that selfish expectation led to a sanctimonious escape. I want out. I don't want any part of this anymore. And he expressed itself in anger and bitterness toward God. I don't want to live. We see it in Jonah. We see it in Elijah. We see it in these great men of the Bible. And it can happen to us. The year 2020 hasn't exactly met our expectations. A year ago right now, man, 2020. That sounded so good, didn't it? 2020. Man, what an exciting year. About March, we wanted it to end. We were talking today how we thought... You know, when it first came, we thought, well, by Easter, we'll be back to church. Remember that? By Easter, we'll be back to normal. <laughs> Boy, Easter was a long time ago. 
We wonder if we'll be back to normal by Easter this year now. We look back on 2020 and we say, God, what, what, what gives? Lord, why all this pressure on the church? Why, why do we have to do all this stuff? And, and why is this disease hanging around? Why can't you just solve this and let us go back to eating, you know, being normal again? And, and, and sometimes the expectations that we have for our life, we say, well, this isn't the way I wanted to retire, or this isn't the way I wanted to live, or I wanted more money in the bank, or I wanted my family to love me more, or I wanted this, or I wanted... And, and all of a sudden, those selfish expectations... Cause us to wave goodbye to God. We say, I'm out. You didn't do what I wanted. You didn't answer the prayers the way I wanted you to answer them. And so, Lord, I've lost my trust in you. I've lost my faith in you. I'm out. And all of a sudden, pastor's getting a call. Because there's been a sinful expression. All of a sudden, your marriage is ruined. All of a sudden, there's an affair. All of a sudden, there's a crime, a suicide. But it didn't start then. It started way back when we allowed a little root of bitterness to take hold, when God didn't do what we thought he should do in our life. And may I encourage you, as we come into this fresh new year, if there's bitterness in your heart toward a person Toward God, a spouse, a parent, a boss, someone else at church, a pastor. If there's bitterness, ask God with his help to flush that from your life, to cleanse it from your life. Don't allow that root to wrap itself into your heart because that won't be the end of it. It will grow, and it will rob you of spiritual vitality, and it will leave destruction in its path along the way. May we see the benchmarks of bitterness, and as we say, nip it in the bud. When you sense bitterness creeping into your heart over something, take care of it now, immediately. As pastor said a moment ago, his son-in-law, right away. Right now, bitterness, get it out. Lord, would you help us tonight to not only deal with bitterness, but Lord, maybe first of all, we need to identify it. And Sometimes we kind of sweep it under the rug and we say, well, yeah, I was disappointed, but I'm over it. And yet we allow that root to grow. Sometimes we flippantly say, yeah, I forgave him, but we didn't. We certainly didn't forget it. And Father, I pray that you would do a thorough work in our hearts and show us those little tiny roots of bitterness because they grow. They take hold and they're below the surface. We don't always see them, but they're there. and They're becoming stronger and stronger. And Lord, I pray that whatever benchmark we're at tonight of this thing called bitterness, be willing to, to get before you Say, Lord, cleanse my life of bitterness, of unforgiveness. Lord, help me to go forward with your victories, your vitality in my life 
May I not leave others in a wake of destruction because of my life and the bitterness therein. Help my life to be a, a, a sweet savor of your grace and love for others. May my life be that which would cause others to want to know you and not turn away from you. And so God, wherever there's bitterness in my life or these who have heard tonight, may you show it to us and may we be honestly willing to deal with it. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to ask the pianist to begin to play. And we won't stand right now or sing. But perhaps there at your seat, just do business with the Lord. If you're listening at home, just make your couch an altar. And if God has put his finger on an area of bitterness, it may be small right now. Maybe just a little thing that upset you a week or two ago. Maybe even on the way to church. Boy, that thing can grow if we're not careful. Maybe it's deep-rooted. Maybe it's been there for years. But you know, it's not too big a problem for God. God can untangle the roots of bitterness. It starts with us being willing to identify it. Say, Lord, this is a grievance to your Holy Spirit. This quenches your spirit in my life, in my family, in the church holds back revival. Forgive me. Cleanse me. David in Psalm 51 asked God to cleanse his heart of sin. And he had a lot of sin there that needed to be cleansed. But then he said, renew a right spirit in me. I think David knew that perhaps the devil was going to follow up his prayer with some bitterness. He was going to try to entangle him and get him to think that maybe God had somehow wronged him in that process. He said, Lord, I need a right spirit. I need the inner workings of my heart cleansed that I don't go down this road again. We need to pray the same. Lord, I thank you that you always deal with us in love. We see it in the life of Jonah. He got bitter, he got angry, he ran from you, but you didn't give up on him. You stayed after him. Took him through some chastening. Lord, you gave him a, a second chance. And Lord, even after that, in his bitterness there under that gourd, you still loved him. You came to him, you spoke to him. You tried to woo him back to yourself. Lord, the problem is not God. The problem is us. May we, unlike Jonah, recognize when you're speaking to us and loving us and trying to encourage us to do right. May we respond in that positive way to you. Whatever the need is tonight, may you meet that need, I pray. Pastor, you come. Take your seat.